Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the table at a dance competition? Exactly what are the judges looking for anyway? This is Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. Each week, we'll cover a different topic related to the world of competitive dance from the perspective of the judges behind the table. From kissy faces to angsty faces and all the faces in between, stage presence is an important part of your score at dance competition. But how do you know if your performance quality is cutting it? Here today with Making the Impact are IDA judges and dance educators Jackie Belligian and Sam Quinn to chat about stage presence in the competitive dance world. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Making the Impact. I'm your host, Courtney Ortiz, and I'm here with my co-host, Leslie Mueller. What's up, Courtney? Not much. What's up with you? We're just hanging out. Yeah, we're hanging out. It's been a great, (laughs) great day of recording so far over here, and it's a great January as well. It is. It's 2022. We are having a great year so far and looking forward to comp season coming up soon. So pumped for comp season. I've been judging a little bit already this season. So many great dancers out there. And I know all of our IDA judges are so eager to get back behind the judging table. So I can't wait for you all, all of you listeners out there, to attend an IDA-affiliated competition. And if you do, then you're going to have some fabulous IDA judges judging your dances, giving you some great critiques. And we all just can't wait for the season to start. And speaking of the competition season... Yeah. If guess you're, what? If you're looking for something a little sooner than actual competition... Wait no more. Well, we are very excited to let everyone know that Back by Popular Demand is IDA's virtual competition. (laughs) It's back. (laughs) It's back. If you were a previous contestant of ours throughout the past two years of IDA's virtual, we have decided to bring it back in a slightly new format that we will be launching and sharing on our website and social media platforms soon. So stay tuned for all of the details. Our official launch will be in February and it will be accepting submissions for our virtual competition throughout the entire competition season until May. So stay tuned for more details for that. If you want to learn more about our virtual comp, you can visit impactdanceadjudicators.com slash virtual comp. And this season, we are proud to have Arrange Us app as one of our season sponsors. If you're a dance teacher, choreographer, studio owner, or creative director, you need to check out the Arrange Us Dance Formations app. Arrange Us allows you to map out your formations for your choreography directly on their easy-to-use mobile app on iPad or iPhone. You can label your dancers, color coordinate, and even sync your formations with your dance music. You can share your finalized formations with your team with one easy click. This app is such a helpful tool to visualize your choreography ahead of time or keep your dancers clean and organized from the start. Staging couldn't be easier thanks to Arrange Us. Click the link in our show notes to download the app for free in the App Store. And another one of our season sponsors this year has been around since season one of Making an Impact, and that is Level Up Dance Supplies. They were founded in 2010 by a dance mom with the goal of being your one-stop shop for all of your dance gear and accessory needs. They have everything you need for your dancer's training, from stretching gear, turning discs, flexibility tools, and so much more. Level Up also offers great gear to use at competition, like rolling rack, travel bags, garment bags, dream duffels, and pop-up changing tents. And because quality and affordability matter, you can rest assured that you're getting what you need at the price you can afford. Head on over to levelupdancesupplies.com to view all of their products and use our exclusive podcast promo code IMPACT21 in all caps at checkout to receive $10 off your first order. Thank you to Arrange Us and Level Up Dance Supplies for sponsoring this episode. 
And something new that we've added into our podcast this season that I'm sure you've heard us talk all about is our Kofi account where you can buy us a coffee and show your support for our podcast. If you love what we're doing over here at Making the Impact, then click the link in our bio to donate to our show now. And all of your donations will go directly back into producing future episodes of Making the Impact. And we've had some really great donations lately and awesome reviews from our fans that we want to give a shout out to. Thank you to Miss Court from Kofi. She says, love this podcast. Yes, Miss Court. Short Thanks, Miss Court. <laughs> and also shout out to Kimberly on Kofi. She said, as a mom of a micro mini dancer, your recent episode, Mini Mania, was awesome. I loved what Richard Elsie said about letting your dance journey be your own. Thank you for always inspiring and having amazing guests who bring new perspectives. Love you guys. Oh, I love that episode too. Yeah, it was a good one. So sweet. So thank you to every single donator that, that has sent us a donation on Kofi. We are so grateful for all of your support and everybody who's also left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love all of our fans. All right, everybody, it's time to meet our special guests. And we are talking about stage presence today on the podcast, which is something that we haven't talked about in an episode entirely by itself. We, we double checked because both of us were like, surely we've talked about this. And <laughs> no, we haven't. So here we are, season three, stage presence. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy we haven't talked about this. This is obviously a hot topic. Uh, we're talking about performance quality, stage presence. And I know we're going to have a lot to say. We have two special guest IDA judges joining us on the podcast for this episode. Our first special guest IDA judge who is joining us today is a brand new guest to our podcast. She's been on the IDA roster for many years. I've known her for a very long time, and she has been an educator all across the East Coast and New York City. I'm so excited to welcome Jackie Belagian to the podcast. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks. Happy to be here. So happy to have you. And it's been a long time coming because we've been wanting to have you on the podcast for so long, and this topic... I know you're going to have a lot to say and share since you've been judging for so many years and have seen all the performance. You know it. I'm so <laughs> excited to be here. Well, if you wouldn't mind sharing with all of our listeners and fans out there a little bit more about who you are, where you're based, any career credits you'd like to share, and what you're currently working on. Sure. So I have been in New York now for about, oh, 27 years, 28 years, and I've done pretty much done it all. I've done choreography. I've done a lot of teaching and uh, performing. I am currently just working on, I'm actually in a school program. I'm, I'm in a master's program right now. So I'm working, kind of focusing on school, but also teaching master classes, getting ready for the judging season. Can't wait. But I think, uh, Courtney, I think we first met when I hired you possibly to do the Rachel Ray show with yeah. me as a, a dancer and you were phenomenal. Oh my so God, I'm so excited. So long ago. Yes. Been a while ago. <laughs> been a minute. So yes, that's that's who I am and, and what I do. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jackie, for joining us today. I can't wait to dive into this episode. But before we do, I have one more special guest to introduce to the world. And you may remember him from two of our previous QA episodes in season one and season two. I'm excited to welcome back my dear friend, Mr. Sam Quinn, to the podcast. What up, what up? <laughs> <laughs> Sam welcome in the house. back. Thanks for having me again. I'm so excited. Yeah, we have you on your first real non-Q&A episode. I know. I'm stoked. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Feels legit. Like I made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, thank you for joining us again. And if you wouldn't mind reminding all of our listeners out there a little bit more about you. Sure. 
grew up in Massachusetts. I went to school at the University of Arizona, got my BFA in dance there, done everything from cruise ships to concert work, bad boys of dance, step one dance company. And my favorite is I was the organizer of the viral boys dance Two movement in Times Square. So I had that idea and kind of ran with it. And here we are now. And since COVID, I always say I'm a dancer first and a publicist second. So I work in PR <laughs> and yeah, loving it. So creative outlet on the side using the opposite side of my brain. But that is me, the end. Yeah, <laughs> short and sweet. Short and sweet, I love it. And a fabulous judge always out there working for IDA and always supporting us since the beginning. We're so grateful for your support. And thank you both for joining us. Let's talk about stage presence. Yes. Whew, stage presence. Well, since this has been such a long time coming, Courtney, I think we've, you know, we've set ourselves up here. It's got to mm. be an amazing episode. Yeah, yeah. But I think we're lucky because we've got four of us who are performers. And, you know, I think everybody, almost everybody who dances starts as a performer. I mean, you don't, you don't see four-year-olds choreographing. You see four-year-olds <laughs> on a stage, you know, pointing their feet and tapping their toes and everything. So, you know, we all can come from that place, even if that's not the place that we're in right now as a performer first. But I think I first want to ask, Y'all, Jackie and Sam, in your opinion, as educators and choreographers and teachers, uh, what makes a great performer? It's such an open-ended question. Yeah. (laughs) I think what makes a great performer is when you can just see that they absolutely love what they're doing and they're doing it with 100% every, you know, from head to toe, the smile is constant and you can, you can, as a judge, you feel their love and their joy and the genuine feeling of just being on stage is what you know wakes them up in the morning and they go to sleep dreaming about the next time they can step out on that stage whether you're a four-year-old or you're a 19 year old and i think just feeling that sense of love and that sense of joy for me is what makes a great performer technique yes always you know gonna be number two thing but just feeling that sense of joy and that that pride for what you do and that love and the passion oozing out of every pore of your body, I think is for me what what I, I will remember that most. I think that's so important. And yes, because at the end of the day, dance is art, right? And art is supposed to make people feel something, whether it's mm. visual arts, performing arts, doesn't matter. Any kind of art is supposed to make someone feel something. So if you as a performer can step out on that stage and really reach out to the audience with how you're feeling, how you're performing. And as Sam said, make them remember you. Like, you know, the week after they leave that performance, if they remember, oh, that performer was so great. I remember how I felt watching them and and it, it really tapped into my soul. That is a great performer. And it takes work. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think we forget that stage presence can be a muscle that we have to work on all the time. It doesn't always come naturally to people. But for me, what makes a great performer is actually touching your audience, making them feel something for sure, whether it's joy, whether it's a contemporary, really, you know, deep piece, it doesn't matter. It just, it really is all about tapping into the general audience, I think. And also, I always, this is always so funny because at the end of the weekend, you know, Sunday, four o'clock, sometimes we've judged 800, 900 dances. And when we're going through and we're finding those, you know, end of the weekend routines, I'm not thinking of how high your leg went. I'm not thinking of how many turns you did. If we're like, oh, number 14, me and my shadow. She she lit up the stage and I remembered mm-hmm. her specifically mm-hmm. because of how she performed and, and like she crushed it. And so we're not thinking right. of like, like we're remembering you at the end of the weekend. And if you're sticking in our brain, you did something correct. 
Yeah. yeah. And it's probably because of your performance quality, not because you did 15 pirouettes. And right. I love a pirouette. Maybe. Don't get me <laughs> right. wrong. But. <laughs> right. But you did it with a big old smile on your face. And, sure did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really have to command the stage as a performer, I think. And you said, Jackie, it might not be as easy for everyone. Mm-hmm. There might be a lot of people that were just meant to be. When I see a performer, the description you said, Sam, that just exudes like happiness and it's just pouring out of their body they love this every time i see those types of dancers i'm like you are so meant to be on stage or in front of a camera or something it's just not some people it comes natural and then there's other dancers who struggle with kind of navigating how do i perform on stage you might have stage fright it might not be as easy as other people think it is Mm. but then there's studios that are just across the board insane performers yeah it's almost like they don't have those kids yeah it's like where are the kids that are shy right they don't go there you know that's always what i think like y'all y'all just get the kids who have that it factor yeah and that's so always so interesting to me that either they that's just the case and they just have these kids who you know gravitate towards that one studio or they're teaching it and somehow they're teaching it to the kids who are back here in the corner at the beginning of the year but are now front and center, you know, what what's happening between August and mm. March for those kids who somehow have learned mm-hmm. performance quality. And I think Always it's so also curious. really interesting when you can see there it's like a twofold. If, you, if there's an ensemble piece and there's like a few people where it's like we're a little unclear about what the actual emotion and what the story is versus the kids who are in a full group and you can tell that they practice their mm. emotion, you know what I mean? And they talked about the feeling, they talked about the story and the characters that they're portraying and everyone is on the same page. And I think it's really interesting when you can see that group and you're like, this makes sense. They talked about it and that's a good teacher. And I remember judging, I was in Indianapolis and shout out to Carla of Expressions. I was walking, (laughs) walking back to go to the judges table and they were at every single time before they went on stage for a dance, they were like in their group circle having the same energy, breathing together. And I was like, that's an ensemble. That's like a group. Mm. And every time they were performing, every single person was giving 110%. But it was the same. Everyone was on the same page. And I think kind of going back to what makes a great performer and a great performance, it's knowing exactly what you're dancing about, what you're dancing for, and what you're dancing to. And Ooh, and say really, that again. What, <laughs> if I remember it. What you're dancing for... <laughs> Uh, who you're dancing for, what you're dancing to, and what you're dancing about, something like that. But yes, there's three yeah. parts to it. And you have to know That's like great. who, what, where, when, why, how type thing. And when, totally. it's, when it's all done correctly, it's like chef's kiss. Uh, well, yeah. And I actually think, you know, people think dancers don't really think a lot, you know, because right. we use our body so much. But good dancers have to be smart. And I think we have to work like actors and actresses and do our homework. And so sometimes it really is on the dancer and the choreographer too, but the dancer too, Make a list of what you're dancing about, you yes. know, make up if, if you can't relate to your music and hopefully the choreographer knows enough to pick a song the dancer can relate to. Yes. But if you can't relate to your piece of music, make up something that you can that also fits within the music. And so we can't just go into a studio, I think, and dance and do right. ball change right. and kicks. Mm-hmm. We have to take the music home. We have to think about what it means. And we have to, as dancers, put the work in and do our homework, and really be cerebral about it, and maybe dissect the music, and dissect each line by line, if you can't relate. Because the stronger your performance is, the more more authentic your performance is, and you're not faking it, the stronger it's going to come across to the audience. So you always want to be as genuine as possible, and not just fake it. And to do so, I think you really have to 
find that place within yourself that could connect to the music you're dancing to at some point on some level. Yeah. Well, and I think that leads into a really good sort of teaching moment for the teachers who are listening. You know, like we said, some people are born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Um, (laughs) But if you're not born with it, you got to teach it. It's got to get taught somehow. Like you said, it's we are really truly past the time when taking a dance class means just learning how to do a kickball change. The dance teachers are responsible for so much more, including emotional connection to the music, not only for like your own personal enjoyment and growth and connecting to music and whatever, but, you know, for the performance aspect of it, when we take kids to competitions or to performances, what are some things that teachers can do to help in the in the classroom? Like we talked about mm-hmm. writing things down, but even more uh, basic than that, I think. What else do y'all have any advice for teachers out there? Well, for me, when I teach and I do a combo with the with the students, I always just innately feel it. And mm-hmm. I'm really emoting with, you know, as I'm doing it, as I'm do- performing it. And so I think teachers do a, should really emulate or the students should emulate the teachers mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that, you know, even when I'm teaching littles, I don't mind teaching littles. I'm really animated. And my personality is really bigger than it ordinarily would be when I'm out of the classroom. Right. So I think they right. feel that and they emulate that and they, they kind of get that. But also when I'm teaching older kids and comp kids, as I'm doing the combo, and it's time to just do it in groups, I really, you know, I'm up there with them and, and feeling it. And I hope they can feel that and watch that as I'm doing it. And so emulation is a huge thing. And as teachers, we always have to know that we're always on, right? you know, in the yeah. classroom and the, the kids are watching everything that we're doing. And so hopefully there's that. But secondly, as a choreographer, I understand you want to connect with the music too, mm-hmm. because sometimes you feel more creative when you have a piece of music that you can really connect to. But you have to be mindful, I think, of dancers and and the level and the ability and the age of the dancer and if they can connect to the music as well. So there really has to be a balance, I think. But I also think that the teachers and or choreographer have to have a discussion. You have to have to, in rehearsal, talk about what this music is about and help the dancer along in that. And also videotape the dancer, have them watch themselves, Mm. himself, herself, uh, doing the dance and seeing how they perform. Because sometimes... You can think in your head right. that you're performing a certain way, right. but on stage, it might not come across. Right. So as a dancer, watching yourself um, is not always comfortable and not always easy, but I think, uh, I think it really helps a lot. Absolutely. And I, I remember when I was growing up and we were, I was doing solos, my dance teacher, Anne-Marie, used to always print out our lyrics for our song so that we weren't just listening to the, uh, you know, the instrumental track or whatever it is, or like the backtracking of the song and just dancing to the beat. But actually listening to the words and like Jackie was saying, you have to approach it as, you know, that actor actress mentality of what what are these words saying and how does it relate to my life? So I remember when when I was doing mine, I would like write my own lyrics next to the other mm-hmm. the actual song lyrics. So I had my own story that was going through my brain, always thinking again, and maybe this is just the publicist to me, but the who, what, where, when, why, how. Yeah. <laughs> but the most important is the second why and always asking yourself again, why am I dancing to this? Why? Why, why now? And I have a, I have a playlist on Spotify of every song that I've always wanted to choreograph to. And I, mm. I will always listen to it over and over, like for years before I ever choreograph to it, because <laughs> I want it to actually really resonate with me and really understand the song. And I choreographed a piece for my sister to Autumn Leaves by Eva Cassidy. And it's one of the most beautiful songs. And it has the most heart wrenching story. But I was like, I need to save this for when the time is right. So always knowing yeah. exactly what your song is about and not just giving it away because it's the new Adele song, but like right. giving it to the person that 
can relate to it most, but making sure that that dancer can relate to it and it's not over their head. It's not something that is inappropriate as a, you know, inappropriately too hot, too, too much of a concept for them to actually genuinely understand. And I, I remember seeing in Dance Teacher Network, I might get flack for this, but YOLO. There was a <laughs> YOLO. <lot> of, <laughs> YOLO. There was a thread I saw. It, it like really raised my eyebrows because there were, someone posted something about not having input from their students and they're just setting, giving them the song for their solo and that's it and just move on because it makes oh. their job easier. And I was like, mm-hmm. but you're doing the, the dancer a disservice by not mm. allowing them to have an artistic input about something that they can't relate to or can or cannot relate to. Mm. So I just think there needs to be, you know, for teachers, have an open conversation with the dancers you're choreographing for see what is going on and what they want to dance about. And if, you know, if you want them to do a, a sad contemporary, but they're like, no, I want to smile and I want a pony and right. whip my hair, let them do it. I don't, yeah. you know, I think there just needs to be more communication and more open dialogue with the dancer mm-hmm. who's doing the piece. Right. To just have that that yeah. relationship with their music. I, I love what you said, Sam, about that you used to write your own lyrics alongside the actual lyrics because I did the same thing and I thought I was the only one back then. Like no. I suggest that now to my students, but I back in the day I did that and I remember <laughs> it's so embarrassing because you know you look back at your life and you're like, oh, I was so melodramatic. In high school, Eight. I loved Sarah McLaughlin. I still love Sarah McLaughlin, but back then <laughs> I was like a diehard. And all I, I hope wanted you did was in the arms of an angel. I hope you no, did no, that, that would have been super cheesy, but but I wanted to do. I can't remember which song it was from Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, but, you know, I'm like 15. Hadn't ever had a boyfriend. Hadn't ever experienced ecstasy of any sort. But (laughs) wrote my own little song lyrics out to what I wanted to do my lyrical dance to. And I presented it to my teacher, who, God bless her, looked at it and was like, this is really beautiful. Like, she's now one of my, you know, dear friends. And she would probably laugh at this too. But she was like, I just don't, I don't think you're, you're emotionally ready to put that on stage. You might be feeling those things, but the transition from internally feeling something to externally putting it out there are two different things. And so I did mm. not get to do my Sarah McLaughlin dance, <laughs> uh, which now I'm really, really, really grateful for. Because and I think that like you said, Sam, you kind of do have to have that balance of, you know, allowing your student to have some artistic input, but then having sort of a come to Jesus moment, like, okay, well, here, here's all these emotions that you've written down and that you say you're feeling like, are you comfortable putting that vulnerability on stage? Mm. while also being judged for your technique and your emotional expression. Like, that's a that's a vulnerable place to be, you know? And I think you have to be at a certain level at a, at, at a point. And to, I was not. <laughs> to go to some of these places. Not. not that, mm. like, less advanced dancers can't emote like that. But like, I couldn't. Like, <laughs> like, I think, like, life experience, like, especially when we're talking about, like, song choice, which I think goes hand in hand with performance quality. I think a lot of this has come, like, going back to our music 2.0 that we did Mm -hmm. earlier this season and picking appropriate music, like what you were saying, Sam, I feel like there are so many times, and especially when I'm doing like critiques at Diva Dance Competition, where we get to like actually talk to the dancers afterwards and like see their personality a little bit. Or if I ever go in studio and do like live critiques at a studio, I watch a dancer go and then I see their personality afterwards. And I'm like, I don't feel like that this song choice was right for you. Like your energy and like, your personality is so much different than, and almost, it's not even like they were turning on the acting for the dance. It wasn't that. It was like they weren't ready for this Mm -hmm. emotion or Mm -hmm. this type of performance. And especially for their level, 
they should have went in a different direction that suited them more. And I think that because if they would have went in that direction, they, at the end of the day, it's a competition, would be more successful. And I think that's the ultimate goal. Of course, we want to push our dancers and challenge them and, and have them do different things. And if they, want, if they want sad lyrical, then let's do sad lyrical. But on the flip side of it, I've seen sad lyrical songs with dancers smiling the whole time. And again, it's <laughs> right. like Good there's music. a miscommunication of did you guys talk about what this is about? Right. Who picked this song? Are they? Is this age appropriate? Are they ready for this? They The dancer obviously has no clue what this is about if you're smiling when it says something about, you know, heartbreak. Usually you're not happy when your heart gets broken. So it's a lot of things to that have to go hand in hand with performance. And I don't know. I feel like when I look back at like some of the dances that I did, I don't know if we always talked about intention. We were at a high level, but it was almost like I just had to become an actress and I had to deliver. You know, if it's like lyrical, I knew what kind of emotions that I needed to feel. If it was a fiery jazz, I knew how to turn on the jazz. It's hard to navigate that sometimes at studios. And I think that's something that a lot of studios struggle with is how do I teach my dancers that? How do I get that out of them? Which I know there's so many teachers saying that right now listening. Right. Well, and I think you're right, Corny, in that sometimes I'll go to studios just to rehearse numbers. And one of the first questions I'll ask them is, what is this routine about? Yes. And it always surprises me. Well, not really anymore, but I hear a lot. I'm not really sure from right. the, yep. the dancers will say, I'm not sure. We haven't really talked about it. And it really surprises me. And I think, uh, and this very well may be the case, lots of teachers or choreographers just sort of assume the kids will turn on right. and perform once they hit the stage. And that very well may be the case. But at the same time, again, it's not for me, not super authentic, unless yeah. you really in your mind know what you're going to perform, how you're going to perform it, what you're performing about. And especially if it's a group routine, as Sam said earlier, you have to be on the same page performance wise, right. or it's just going to look completely disjointed. So I think it's really important at least to have a conversation and let the, let the students explore for sure. And, you know, have them bring out their own experiences and their own stage presence and their own performance quality. But at the same time, I definitely think a conversation is uh, is important. And I know it's hard because sometimes there's only certain minutes in the rehearsal and right. you, your teachers are worrying about a clean routine and, and everyone being together and who's not here today and restaging and all of that. But having a conversation, I think, is uh, initial conversation is very important. Yeah. And I think okay. it's also just goes, I know we kind of just mentioned this a little bit, but not giving songs because they make us feel a certain way, but truly understanding what they're saying, like. Yeah. For two two specific songs that whenever I, I hear them at competition, I'm like cringing on the inside a little bit. Play that sax. Just don't use it oh, ever, yeah. ever. <laughs> Inappropriate. And she used to be mine because- I knew you were going to say that. I, yeah. it, every time I'm like, hello. Because it's Waitress. Band. So this song is from Waitress. And I'm like, <laughs> full, full, because they're all smiling. And I'm like, this is like actually the most dark time of the musical. Right, of and whether you're life. doing it as a lyrical or just the Sarah Bareilles song, it has a very specific meaning and right. she's in a in very time and space. Yeah. <laughs> in in the show, I mean, she's pregnant, so there's that too. But it's yeah. it's just you know, not understanding the song in the context of the world that it originally lives in and mm -hmm. making sure you actually understand the song in the context that it lives in and how you're bringing that context to the stage is sometimes where we're where we're misaligned. So just yeah. know the lyrics and know the story and I'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to kind of flip a little bit really quick because I do want to get to this at a point in time and just hear everybody's perspectives. So there have been a lot of times where I've seen, because we're kind of talking about like 
how to incorporate performance and, you know, ways of teaching that and stuff like that right now. So I've seen a lot of dancers and usually it's, it, it's a studio habit. So then I know that it's being taught where teachers must be telling the dancers to do like kissy faces right. to the audience as like a go-to expression mm-hmm. with like puckering their lips and like duck lips like sticking out and like it goes <laughs> and, and like I'm specifically thinking of like many to junior jazz dances and musical theater dances yeah. and it goes in and out of their adorable precious smile which yeah. is all I want to see to then like immediately jolting to like this little kissy face in between and um and the entire time I'm sitting there as a judge trying to figure out like why are they doing this and who told them to do this because it's then I then I notice that it's a studio habit. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on on these kissy faces and also I guess are there other examples that maybe I haven't seen that might be like something that you know teachers are teaching that we don't love or or do you love it? Do you hate it? What like <laughs> tell me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I I really don't like that at all, and I feel like it's very pageanty, and it might yeah. come from the pageant oh, world. I feel yeah, like yeah, that's true. Right, it's very very you know plasticky and and just over the top, and I think I really feel like it might come from the pageant world. So some dance teachers who along the way may have had pageant training mm. teach their kids that. I also feel like you know some you know so how how some habits kind of catch fire from one studio to the other, right. you know styles and. And um, I think that at some competitions, you know, some teachers may have seen littles doing that and then tell their kids, hey, you know what, if you can't smile, at least do this Mm -hmm, because at least you'll have something going on. But I really think it's so distracting. And I think that I hate to say it, but if if you have to resort to that, maybe again, choose a different piece of music or maybe the little one isn't ready to perform yet. Or, you know, someone, someone who's older really shouldn't be doing it at all, that face. But really think about, I don't know have some sort of maybe maybe someone who's more trained in performance mm. come to your studio to give an acting coach someone right. come to your studio to give these kids some sort of perspective on performing because that ain't it kid like <laughs> it just it isn't it is not that little yeah face yeah. is not the thing you know i i find it funny <laughs> and it really warms my heart sometimes like if you're like a little bite-sized nugget on stage chanting to like barbie girl and you're just kissy face the entire time (laughs) i cackle and i love it personally it's when we you know if you're if you're two weeks old doing your acro solo love it keep it it's cute i'm fine (laughs) with it it's when we get to like the eight nine ten year olds and i notice it mostly it comes after a trick or it comes after some sort of technical moment where that's like and period it's like the exclamation point yeah (laughs) they're like the face goes blank and then they're like let me make up for my turn sequence with no performance with my kissy face (laughs) and i feel like there just needs to be more consistent performance from start to finish and if that's your go-to let's let's change it up a little bit and on the flip side of that what irks me the most (laughs) is in the contemporary when kids do the the like the emotional like head shake like you're saying no or you're actually like saying yes like you're responding (laughs) to what the music is saying with like a really dramatic hand don't do it shaking hand Uh, or something yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) i wish audience i wish you could see sam right now because he's giving us like life with these uh (laughs) expressions yeah leslie's uh sarah mclaughlin oh yes oh it was gonna be so good 
But I think it comes back to, you know, what the teachers are, are teaching and maybe right. maybe teachers doesn't feel comfortable right. teaching stage presence. And so they kind of default to this little, you know, face. I also but, feel um, like it, for me, I remember when I was cheerleading in middle school, like you've, you all have all seen cheerleaders, like they make those big outlandish exaggerated faces. And that to me started getting translated into dance mm. and, it's, and even dance team. I think dance team does that a lot too. It's just, just giant faces and I think it's just sort of a way to, you know, I feel like once you paste on a smile, it starts to sink and melt after a while, especially for little kids who are mm. just being told to smile. So right. it's like, here's some options. And <laughs> the other options that I've actually seen used often are just the vowels. You know, give us an A, E, ah. Like it's that's how your face looks when you say these vowels. And so that's mm. you get a little more variation rather than just kissy face. And yeah, but I do agree with you. I like when they start out with that sweet smile and then all of a sudden it's like, I did a round off and here's my kissy face. You're like, no, just smile. That smile would have been It's almost like a concentration face with like an added, you know, kissy face. It's like someone said, it's like the go-to. And it's like you said, Jackie, distracting. I mean, I can't even enjoy what's going on because I'm confused why there's a kissy face instead of just a genuine smile. Especially if it is like a high energy jazz or like a fun, cute musical theater. Like I want to see you act if it's a musical theater, but and then you're not because you're just giving me a kissy face the whole time. But also like another thing that I think a lot of teachers might instruct dancers to do, which I'm curious to hear your thoughts are looking at the judges or also Mm. like winking at the judges and making eye contact with them. What are your guys thoughts on that? I'm probably the outlier again. If you're Sam, I know. I'm just kidding. But I think it it all depends on the dancer. If it's like a little two year old and she is she, I can see that her she's like you look at the judge and you smile at them, and I'm like, right. hi, I'll you take listen that. to That's your cute. teacher, and I think of it as right. like, oh, you're listening to your teacher and you're doing exactly what they tell you. Thanks for the wink, love it. But <laughs> right. I I just always think you know don't dance to us dance to the back yeah. row the person in the far back i want to see you projecting that energy filling up the stage filling up the auditorium theater whatever you're in and it's not you know it, we're not this intimate black box show where it's just three people watching you you're performing to an audience don't play to the three judges play to every single person especially the back row i agree with that i think that we have to be mindful of the fact that it's a performance i mean it's competition but it obviously is a performance and you do want to sell it to everyone not just us so um like sam said i don't mind every now and then them engaging us mm-hmm. and it's really cute but at the same time i always feel bad when they're always playing to mm-hmm. us and i have to look down for half a second to score it or i have to and i i lose that contact with them i always really feel guilty and really feel bad but um but i do think that they really should play to the audience in general Hey listeners, it's Courtney, and I want to tell all of the dance teachers and choreographers out there about a brand new app that is changing the game in the dance world, and that app is called Arrange Us. Arrange Us is a mobile app that allows you to visualize your formations on stage in a convenient and easy way. Just add your dancers straight into the app and move them around with the tip of your finger to create new formations and map out your transitions for your choreography. You can color coordinate your dancers, label each dancer, and even sync the formation changes with your music. I can't recommend this app enough as it has helped me stay organized whenever I'm guest choreographing around the country. I know you will love it, and it's a must-have app for all dance studio teachers. 
Click the link in our show notes or head on over to the Apple App Store now to download the Arrange Us Dance Formations app for free. Available now for iPhone, iPad, and coming soon to Android. Yeah, and I think the where I sort of am with Sam is to a certain extent of, you know, like you said, if you're if you're a little bitty and you're playing mm-hmm. to us, that's cute. That's great. But then it's like, where is the line? Because I've definitely mm. seen like middle school and up kind of ages where you're like, oh, this is now really just uncomfortable for you to be looking at me constantly or checking in, checking like, all in the time. or performing just to us. Even with the kissy faces, it's like, how do you graduate from kissy face eight-year-old to non-kissy face 12-year-old? Face, 12, exactly. Like where, how, where are we, how are we growing out of that? Because nothing's worse than like a middle schooler making a kissy face at you as a judge. And you're like, I don't know what, what do I do here? Like, do I give you a thumbs up? What do I do? It just feels awkward. Like yeah. it just, it makes me uncomfortable. Like right. I, mm-hmm. and I agree. I think it is a competition at the end of the day, but I still to this day kind of wish that the judges sat like halfway back or at the back of the house or something. I don't like us being at the very edge of the stage because mm-hmm. it's almost like all eyes are on us at all times. And then the kids think that we're all that matter which in a way we you're trying to impress us as judges but at the same time like it should be more about the performance there is an entire audience there that is watching you that like if you just perform for the judges why are all these people behind us watching like that's why if the judges were further back then they would really perform to the entire audience and then i could also see the full beautiful formations and when you're not finding center Yeah, I love sitting in the back. I love when they have us set up in the yeah. back. And it's just everyone's more relaxed. I yes. think students are more relaxed because they can't see yep. us, mm-hmm. you know, and we're more relaxed because there's no pressure of, you know, making that eye contact if they're looking at you, right. or if they're performing to you. And yeah, we see everything in a wide scope instead of just seeing up close. But I, I definitely agree. It ends up being a more genuine performance for the dancers. And like you right. said, they can relax into it more. It's, it's less yeah. pressure. I wish that mm-hmm. Mark did it, honestly. And yeah, I, think- I mean, I've only worked maybe for two people, two companies, and I don't even think they were normally doing it that way. It was just the way the, the room menu. was set up. It was like we had to be wherever we were, you know. And I think it's also interesting to see how the confidence grows. And like, what's awesome about IDA is being able to go back to these comps where, you know, we see they bring a lot of the same studios are, you know, loyal to these competitions. So we get to see these kids grow up year after year mm-hmm. after year. And really see the transformation in their confidence in their performance as they go from, you know, two year old to 18 year old. And it's always just it's so exciting to see that. But I think what is the most interesting is how you perform in your solo versus how you perform in a duo trio. Because Mm. when you're dancing with your friends, and you're dancing in a duo trio, it's not two or three solos happening at once. And I know Mm -hmm. every judge has, you know, probably said this dozens and dozens of times. But you're dancing with someone. Again, why? What is your connection with each other? What is your relationship? Yes. And how are you looking? If you are doing a duet and you don't look at each other until your end pose, right. I'm sure your entire critique is going to be about your relationship and your eye contact. You need to right. dance exactly. with your friend. It's weird. You're just dancing yeah. next to someone. You're like, I'm not going to look at you. <laughs> Unless it's intentional, you're not here. sure. But like, it's weird to me. So I agree. I just always think solo versus duo trio and duo trios are sometimes the hardest ones because you actually have, there's partnering sometimes and. Right. You know, I always say and the first thing of a duo trio starts with your eyes and that's the connection and that's the performance that you're telling with someone. You're both 50% responsible or 
33.3% of the whatever. <laughs> the but trio. The trio. <laughs> good, <laughs> math. good math. <laughs> <laughs> but I think to kind of circle back and to touch on what Sam said too, is that what teachers can, can do, uh, I think, to help with performance in rehearsal, in the studio, in class, is maybe some improv. Mm, you know, yeah. I love giving kids some scenarios and it also teaches them to react to what maybe somebody else is doing who ended up being right next to them. And you have to stay in character, but also react. And, and I think that helps in, in duo trios too, because you really do make that connection. And improv really, I think, helps with that a lot. and helps with them thinking on their feet and maybe hopefully not thinking because it is improv. But yeah, I think that would help a lot too, is doing a little more improv and giving, giving them parameters uh, with what they're supposed to be performing about or what they're supposed to be dancing about, but also give them the freedom to be able to express themselves how they want when they improv. And I, I love that idea in terms of performance quality, not necessarily mm-hmm. like obviously improv is helpful for movement ideas right, right. and things like that. But I mm-hmm. just, I feel like so many kids these days, because we're all at that age, the kids these days don't, I don't feel like they have a lot of access to, to a variety of emotions. Like social media just sort of gives you like, everybody's perfect. Everything is happy or everything is mm. devastatingly sad. Like, what is, mm. what's the in-between? And I think mm. improv, like you said, Jackie, with parameters of, like, the nuances that can be in-between mm-hmm. those two extremes, because I think that's what we see at competition. We either see super sad, depressing, she used to be mine, which makes me cry just because of the song. Like, your dance might be terrible, but I'm still crying, and you think it's because you're really good? It's, <laughs> it's because the song is really sad. So, like, you've got to understand that song. Um, or it's, let's get soaking wet, and everybody's out there just, like, you know, going for it. And there's so much more in between that I don't think we see a lot of. And I think that's mm. because the kids don't have the opportunity opportunity to express that in many places. So I think improv activities would be key for that, you know, situation. And I also don't think kids sometimes fully understand what it means to actually be have emotion. So another thing teachers can do is pull like, do the dance history lesson. Let's go back to like, the old school, you know, if it's a jazz musical theater, look at like old Tony Ward performances, look at the big production numbers and watch the ensemble people don't watch the Sutton Fosters, because mm-hmm. they're obviously giving face but watch the ensemble, you know, too darn hot from the Tony Awards. that is all just like straight dance watch sing 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 from Fosse from Broadway and how how these people are still performing without the kissy face and they're not worried right. about pirouettes. But they're giving you character, they're giving you acting beats, and they're giving you a dynamic performance. And I think, I know, especially for me, I'm a visual learner. So I always, you know, taking notes and watching myself back to be like, oh, God, that was terrible. Let me Mm -hmm. fix this. But having a visual reference and truly understanding, even if you're doing a point solo, ballet is storytelling. And you need to be able to play that character. And these variations come from specific moments in ballets where there's a story to it, you know, are you trying to impress whoever? Are you are you sad because the the prince left you, whatever. But watching these variations, watching the Broadway shows, watching, you know, the contemporary companies of the world, how they're incorporating their choreography and emotion together seamlessly. It's not one or the other. It's it's a symbiotic relationship that will take that performance and your piece to that next level. So do the research, do the homework, but give your students that visual tool to truly understand and digest, especially the younger ones, what it means to perform. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And as you were <laughs> Rambling. giving this beautiful speech, <laughs> I was thinking about like more things that I look for in performance quality and something that 
I'm a big stickler for and something that I preach a lot when I teach is use of focus with your eyeballs. We love focus. Um, Love a focus. I think that a lot of dancers get stuck in the mirror and it's very Mm -hmm. clear that they're mirror dancers when they hit the stage, that they haven't practiced enough without the mirrors in the studio. So for all of the studios out there who are getting ready for competition, you have to make sure that, you know, at, at the very least the week before competition, you better flip those dances to face the opposite way. So we're not looking in the mirror. If there's a way to cover your mirrors up, that would be great because they're not going to have the mirrors and then they're going to rely on it. And then we're going to have eyes wandering, looking out the corner of their eyes, trying to remember what comes next because they're, too, they're relying on the mirrors too much. But not even that, but making sure that the details are clear in the choreography when there's a focus change. And that needs to come down to cleaning. It should be taught the moment choreography is taught because I'm, I'm the type of dancer that the first time you teach me something, I will remember it that way forever. And it's going to be harder for me. And everybody learns differently. Some people, some choreographers like to just get the choreography out and then let's go back and fine tune it and get all the details. But I'm the kind of, I'm like really detail oriented. So I want to give you, give me all of the details and I will remember those. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be harder for me to change it towards the end because, you know, I have it this exact way. So like, however, whatever way works for you choreographers, but I think that a lot of choreographers either tend to forget or their dancers just aren't applying the focus Mm -hmm. changes. Because your eyes are really going to tell a story. And if you're just looking at the front the whole time, whether it's at the judges or actually to the back of the house, it's still not as believable. And if you're following your hand or using your focus or swiping down and looking up, like you're going to say so much more in your performance immediately. Even if there's not much going on on your face, your eyes are going to enhance that performance a million percent. So I'd say like run your dances and make sure... and. And that is especially when it gets into groups, that's something that I'm yes. really nitpicky about in, in judging where I'm like, hey, where's the focus supposed to be for that? There was one girl looking to the front and everyone else mm-hmm. was to the side or whatever it's supposed to be. So like those are the details that we want to see cleaned as judges that are going to make or break the performance score, I think. Well, especially in groups, as you said, Courtney, because everyone can be turning their head to the right or to the left, but some of us are looking down and some of us are looking directly side. And it does change how you see the routine does change, you know, the focus and the story in some ways, in very subtle ways, but it does. So focus is huge. Huge. Sam, you're on. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in that same breath, Court, what sometimes we think that we have to do so much face, but sometimes the most powerful and the most impactful pieces that I still remember to this day are the dancers who are entirely still and are just letting their emotions speak for itself. And they don't Mm. need to do 9,000 pirouettes But you can tell the second that this dancer came on stage, like, here we go, like, this is going to be a show. And then I also feel like what causes the, you know, the overperforming sometimes is Mm. the lack of confidence in the technical training, where they're selling their face. So you're distracted by the face when they're, you know, the technique of their Alicicone turns is just not it. And trying to oversell with the face so we, we don't look at other things. So I'm always you know, if we're like giving a massive face, I'm almost I'm like, okay, you got the performance, I can see that I'm now right, my entire focus has shifted to your technique, because I'm like, I want to make sure that we're we have a, a, you know, really nice balanced dancer here, where it's not just wow them with the personality and the technique isn't where it should be or what what we could be capable of. So kind of twofold of like playing with the stillness and letting you know, less is more, but then also more needs to be less to have 
more technique, if that makes sense. Yes. And I think, and I have something to say, but I think this is the perfect transition to kind of talk about technique versus performance. But uh, something that I want to say in relation to that, Sam, which is so good, and I'm so glad you brought it up, is that the example where the dancers are performing like it's nobody's business. They are performers. They were taught it. They're naturals, whatever it is. They're putting on a show. But that technique is a little all over the place. But then I've also seen the opposite Mm -hmm. where there is a dancer who has amazing performance. Their technique isn't strong, but the choreographer knows that and they hid their flaws so well where it's almost to a point where it's like the performance is what makes this dance. Mm -hmm. And I don't even need all this flash and, and crazy tricks and technique. Because that's not their strong suit. This dancer is a performer. And that teacher was smart enough to know, I don't need all this glitz and glam. I'm going to showcase what they do best. And at the end of the day, that's all we want as a judge. That dancer could perform their heart out and walk around the stage and do absolutely nothing. And I would remember it more than the person that was overperforming with bad technique. (laughs) I I will never not bring this number up because I respect it so much. And I, we've talked about it in another podcast. Caleb Dickey's oh. pizza dance from the virtual competition. Um, it was. He, oh, my God. Caleb Dickey is yes, an IDA I judge. judged that. You judged that. It was a musical Greece. theater piece to us, uh, yes. hopelessly devoted to you. And Genius. the girl comes out and you just think, okay, this is going to be hopelessly devoted to you. You just sort of know what you think you're going to expect. And then all of a sudden she whips out a pizza box <laughs> and she's dancing <laughs> about this pizza. And there is nothing crazy hard in the stance. It is not super technical. The choreography made use of her skills. She is um, whoever this girl is out there. And I think Ohio, we love you. We love you, <laughs> Caleb Dickey. Your choreography was so smart. And like, like Sam said, like he judged that I didn't judge it. I just watched it. But I mean, that would have done it for me. Like you, you performed the heck out of it and the pizza and it, the whole concept, it was just right. So, right. you know, sometimes if all of the pieces fit together properly, yeah. That's all you need, yeah. You know, for a winning, award-winning, re- rememberable, memorable dance. Yeah, and I think it also just goes to in that same breath. Caleb knew exactly what these this dancer's strengths were, right. and there was not one thing that was out of her skill set, and mm-hmm. there was not one ounce of technique that was out of place. It was everything that she could do. She could do on the left side or on her worst day, and it wouldn't make a difference because she's selling out right. her performance. But again, you know, in that same in that same breath, it's that here come my turns. I must stop my performance because I'm so worried about right. making sure that I do all my turns perfectly. Where she was like, "I'm dancing about pizza. This is the right. best thing ever." <laughs> and I remember, and then I I'm going to go do some turns. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I was judging this one solo. I'll never forget it. it. It was some song about like always dreaming about you, and it's clearly this like love song. And this girl was dancing about cake and had a literal nice. cake on the middle of the stage <laughs> at the end literally runs and smashes her face <gasps> into the cake and starts licking the frosting. And I was like, 100, done. <laughs> you win. Yeah. You like you you danced about a cake and then you smashed your face into the cake and it was oh genius. Oh my God. So it's oh like my just, God, that's awesome. Sometimes the gimmicks work and the, they sell, yeah. but they have to be done correctly. And Caleb right. is a perfect example of that. Love you, Caleb. Love you. <laughs> I want to dance about cake and smash my head I know. Cake. That's genius. Like she had cook- You're winning at life. Not- yeah, yeah, so good. That's amazing. But yeah, I mean, it makes it's really on the choreographer to make sure that if you have a really strong performer who is not as strong in technique, that they really only do what they're capable of and what's clean. 
try to really suppress the pressure um, that we put on ourselves to throw in extra mm-hmm. turns or extra tricks. And and there's nothing worse um, for a judge than to see a dancer who's a great performer who then does really awful fuete turns because, you know, let's face it, they're really hard and, and it takes a long time to be able to do those cleanly. And so there's just nothing worse than seeing this performer who would have been done a wonderful job doing a single clean pirouette because they were such a strong performer and they do fuetes and you're like, oh, it's very cringy at that yeah. point. So really serve your students, serve your, your dancers by focusing on their strengths yeah. and really keeping it simple, especially if they if you know they can carry it over in performance and they're going to get us with their performance. Right. Because we and we briefly mentioned about this before we started recording, but something that's important to remember for a lot of listeners out there is how how our score gets broken down at competition. And a lot of times uh, well, when we're judging individually before it gets grouped into the 300 out of three judges, it's out of 100 per judge. And more oftentimes than not, the two highest point brackets are technique and performance. And each competition is different with how many points they allot for each category. And sometimes competitions have broken down scores or sometimes it's just a single number score. But I think that majority of the time, most judges are even approaching judging with that idea in our head of technique and performance are the two th- the biggest factors in our score. And sometimes it might be like a 40 for technique and it might be a 30 for performance or something like that as an example. So I think that it's important to remember that let's say you're not as strong technically. So you're getting points off there probably. And that's also depending like we've just been talking about if your teacher is giving you choreography that is maybe too advanced for you and you're not executing it as strong and maybe you're showing things that you're still working on. But then on top of it, we have our performance that's right next to it. And then you're not giving me anything on the performance. You're, that's why your score right. is what it is. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of people, a lot of people have the misconception of, well, I have all these tricks in my dance, mm-hmm. so it should score higher. And it's actually the opposite concept. It's more, if the more things you put are the more things we can deduct. Right. So less is always more. And at the end of the day, you can easily get a performance, that performance score up very easily if the choreography works for the dancer. Like the example that you said, Sam, I mean, if the dancers have to turn into concentration face Mm -hmm. every time they're about to go into a skill and turning the performance off, they're not ready for that skill. I know they're hard. It's a hard skill to do. But at the end of the day, your performance matters. So you can't just decide when I'm going to turn it on and when I'm going to turn it off because your your technique score is going to go down because you're not ready for it and your performance (laughs) score. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to work with when you get on stage and we want you to succeed as judges. So I think it's important for us to kind of explain how these scores come about because a lot of people, I see so many things that dancers shouldn't be doing on stage that it's too advanced for them or their technique isn't as strong. And then also their performance is lacking because it's too hard for them. And I think also what really has shifted my way that I approach judging now really was because of a lot of the virtual comps that I was doing and being mm-hmm. able to feel that performance through a screen. And mm-hmm. a lot of this world is going, or I hate to say it, but like virtual and Lord, God only knows what's going to be happening down the road. But being able to translate that performance in a virtual competition through a screen to still make me cry, that mm-hmm. is a skill and that I can mm-hmm. only imagine what that performer in that dance is like in person. And to translate that into real world, 
everything is virtual self-tape now. So the skills that you mm. bring to the dance competition stage and how that translates into real life where a majority of auditions right now are self-tape and you need to dance in the studio and still sell your performance to a casting director in you know a minute, how do you do that? And it starts in the, the competition world and in your studio and making sure that you're practicing that performance and your character and whatever you're doing with 100% commitment to to that performance. Because if not, when you go to the real world, if you want to be a dancer, it's not about how you'll never do more than a double pirouette. And it's literally just about your face and your performance and the, what you're, the energy that you're bringing in the audition room. So rarely will your leg ever be, you'll never do a tilt. <laughs> you'll always wear two <laughs> shoes and you'll never do more than a double pirouette. It's about your performance and your character. And it starts with the competition stage. So being able to really feel that translated through these virtual comps, shout out to the teachers and the and the choreographers who pushed their kids in the studio to perform to the camera so we could feel it. And mm. I think that's it's just one of the most tangible skills, especially right now, as to how that can translate into jobs and getting, you know, getting paid to dance. It's all about the performance. Definitely. And I also agree with, you know, when you are doing a great dance and all of a sudden you stop and and go into your pirouettes and the faces drop or you do an acro skill and the faces drop. It also tells me, number one, you might not be ready for those skills, but also your performance is not authentic right. because you really have to be so focused consistently throughout your routine that really nothing should throw mm. you as far as the performance. It should never just drop. And I see this every now and then where it drives me crazy, where dancers will perform and they're doing a great job, but all of a sudden they're distracted by something that's happening off stage. Like one of their friends might be back there making them laugh or right. something and they'll they'll break focus and like acknowledge the dancer back there making them laugh. And I'm like, I see you up right. there acknowledging the dancer off stage laughing and you just broke your performance. You can't, you really can't do that. And so authenticity to me means everything. And when they break and when they lose their focus, they drop their focus, they drop their performance. It says to me that you're really sort of faking it. And I, I just, I'm all into authenticity. So I agree, especially when you can tell it's like, it's overperformed sometimes too. Like. I, I feel like it doesn't feel authentic. I'm like, oh, you're really putting this. You're, I mean, I'm grateful. It, I'm grateful <laughs> you're performing. Right. But I think that Doing something, it's yeah. a, a lot of teachers always say, like, I'd rather you go full out than mark. And I'd rather, like, reel you back in. I'd rather you go right. too big and then we can, we can adjust. So I will say I'm grateful you're performing. That's great. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes it might come across as like, whoa, that's a lot. That's a lot to handle. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Or just, chore just choreographed. It's like, you right. know, faces being choreographed is not authentic or genuine. Right. You know, again, when you're Kissy face. three years old, okay, maybe you can choreograph your face. But anything past that, you know, yep. it should be different every time. Your, your dancing should be the same, but your faces should be genuine for the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great point. And just to bring up props too, I know you probably had a separate podcast about yeah, but props, we love but talking as about a them. teacher or choreographer, props in a routine are great, but they should always enhance the mm -hmm. routine. They should never distract from it. So if your dancer is really focused on using that prop and doing it right and, and not performing, right. it's going to distract. And so I always, you know, tell the dancers and the dance teachers that using a prop is like using another limb. Yeah. Like it should feel so natural to you that it's like using another part of your body. And so it's so important to rehearse stage presence with your props in the studio. And I Great think also point. to go back off that, so many times when dancers are dancing with the prop or there's like a, a magic reveal in their in their right. piece, uh, you know, costume changes color or whatever, but there's no shift in the performance as to what, why did we need that? 
how mm -hmm. did you dance differently in the beginning and how are you dancing differently after the, the magic reveal or, you know, you find your, your bowler hat or whatever it is. What is your relationship with the prop and how will it, like exactly Jackie said, how will it enhance the performance? And is it actually doing you a disservice by having, because we're just watching this prop to be like, well, what are they going to do with it? Why is it just sitting there? This is doing nothing for the performance. So just always, again, if you're doing it with, if you're dancing with the prop, it's a duet. You should always be a duet if, you know, if it's a solo, whatever, but treat it as a partner and it, you should yeah. still have a relationship and a connection to that prop. Thank you for coming to my that. TED Talk. <laughs> 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 well, we kind of gave a few examples on our end to kind of round us out on this stage presence discussion, but are there any other like fantastic dances that you will never forget while you've sat behind the judges table when it came to the performance quality of a group, of a soloist? Any examples that you want to give a shout out and share? I have one. And it's not a specific one, but it's a studio as a whole. Patty Eisenhower, that studio, they rehearse their piece from stop, top to bottom. And everything is, is so seamless in terms of every performance. Mm -hmm. You know that with the second that they walk on stage, they mean business. And no matter what piece they're in, whether it's a jazz, a musical theater, a contemporary, they are 100% committed to those characters. And they, they have some choreographers come in there that are doing these really elaborate pieces. There was this one, I was at NYCDA and they did this piece. It was somewhere over the rainbow, but it was like an old, like ancient recording of Judy Garland singing it live. And they had these wow. balloons and I was like, oh, a balloon? Like, okay. And then the choreographer was brilliant and they all blew up their balloons and it's like somewhere over the rainbow and they let the balloons go. And it's like at the very end, like the rainbow's disappearing. And it just, I was like, this is brilliant. But they the way that these dancers portrayed like the old classic Judy style, but mm. then having that contemporary feel, but still having a performance and an emotion on top of it. And then they can do like a Scott Fowler jazz piece. And I'm like, yesing and snapping all over the place. I just think <laughs> they're, they're magicians at that studio. And mm -hmm. I, I always get so excited when I get to see them and judge it. I feel like I need to buy a ticket to come see the <laughs> Patty Eisenhower <laughs> show. But the end. I had a dancer last season. And, you know, dance teachers, uh, studio owners were really on the fence about masks and having to wear, have their students wear masks because they weren't sure how the performance would come across. Well, this young dancer, probably intermediate, I would say, she wasn't advanced and she wasn't super beginner either, but she did a jazz solo and she wore a mask. And let me tell you, she was the perfect example of how you can still wear a mask and get the performance across because her jazz solo, she was just living up there and it wasn't over the top. It was just joy. And you could see it. I mean, she was smizing for Jesus. I mean, she just had those eyes lit up, but also you can feel a person's stage presence. Yeah. It's not just in the face, it's in their body and how they move and how they articulate movements. So it's really important to understand when you're facing upstage, we can still feel that energy. When you're transitioning and moving from place to place, you can't drop the stage presence because we can still feel it. And it's also part of your story. But this young dancer did such a great job of performing. It just made me feel good as an audience member slash judge watching her. And so she was a perfect example of how to perform, do it naturally, and just have fun in a jazz piece. And then the other dancer that I remember from Canada was an advanced dancer. And her choreography was beautiful. No tricks. I don't even think a pirouette at all. But it was just so lovely and so well connected with the lyrics. But this one gesture that she did was, of course, the choreographer's choice. But she did it so well connected. She just looked out to the audience and did this. 
as if she was like wiping away tears mm. and like flung her hands. And she did it with such conviction mm. and intention as I think you mentioned earlier, Courtney, that it was like, it gave me goosebumps because of the context of the routine and what she was dancing about. And it was so well connected. Just that one thing, if done with such conviction can mean so yeah. much. And I think one more thing, sorry, I'm, now my mind is turning, but I feel like a lot of the times with tap, we never were always like, you got to use your face. You got to use your face. Cause we're so worried about the sounds that our feet are making. And sometimes I feel like the tap world is, it's a full body experience here. We need performers from, you know, your feet are performing as well as your face. And I remember I watched this duet, Jamie's Dance Odyssey had a duet. It was a tap duet. And I believe it was called Beep Beep. And it was, um, it was the funniest thing. And it was a car, it was uh, two, two cars that were stuck in traffic. And they were just like looking at each other tapping. And it was like, you're yelling at the person looking through your window, of, like, you're going too fast, you're going too slow, speed up. And it was the funniest thing. There were no lyrics, it just was an instrumental track. But they sold it with their performance. And it was a genius tap routine. And at the end, the dancer goes off stage and they roll a hubcap across the back of the stage. <laughs> like through my microphone, it was the funniest <laughs> thing. But, you know, and I and Kaylin Gray is, is phenomenal with making sure that her dancers are telling a story. And there's a it's a full it's a full fully visualized concept from head to toe. Yeah. Phenomenal taps, phenomenal syncopations. But there's a story going on. Their face is telling you something. And I think you know, especially just to give the tap people some love. There needs to be stronger performance with tap. And it's yeah, not yeah. just the feet, but it, it's a full body experience from the waist up. Yeah, there's a dancer that, and that's a perfect example now that we're talking about tap. There's a dancer that's coming to mind that I've judged before who is an exceptional tapper. And like, just based on execution and, and technique alone, it was going to get a perfect score, but has nothing going on in the face. Mm -hmm. And it's like, all right, well, that's, that's the next level, girl. Like, yeah. come on. You're, you're, you've perfected your craft. You are awesome. You didn't miss a sound. Your, your costume looks great. Choreography is great. Song is great. Final layer, turn your face on. Like, at the end of the day, that's it. That's really what's going to make a total package for us as mm -hmm. judges. I don't think that there are many dancers that will slip through the cracks and win first place at a competition that don't have any type of performance quality. Like they, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it really depends on what competition is there because maybe everybody didn't have performance quality right. <laughs> and that's who won. But I mean, a lot of times we, we want to be moved mm -hmm. in, in our behind the judges table. So just even keep that in mind, everybody. Yeah, even, even hip hop. Hip hop with, with artistic, like they'll come out and do artistic dance and mass. They'll do like contemporary hip hop, but it is some of the most emotional. Like they did this one piece to Kesha's Praying. And it was a contemporary piece, but it was, you know, it had a very strong hip hop thread through it. And I, I was like sobbing out because I was like, you are so committed to this. You're 14, 15 years old, but you're dancing from your heart. And it, you know, when you, no matter what genre you're in, if you're dancing from your heart, I'm in 100%. And mm -hmm. we can feel it within the first three seconds if, you know, which direction it's going to go. And when it's on and it's good, it is so good. And like Jackie yeah. said, especially like in reference to this past couple of years, you like people have been so up in arms about masks on stage. And but Jackie, you're right. When when somebody is dancing full out with feeling, I don't care if you have a mask on. I can see it. I can feel it. I can tell. So if it's if it's possible, it's possible. So if we happen to get back to that point, God forbid, you know, this year, just know that like if you're training the performance quality without a mask, it will still translate with the mask. But 
you have to be training it, mm. period. If you're not training right. it, it's not there and it's going to – sorry for you. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's the same thing I think with like theatrical masks. If you right. decide to do like a half mm-hmm. mask or fancy makeup right. or something, you know, we can – don't rely yeah. on that to help us with the performance. You still have to be – it still has to come from your mm-hmm. body. Even if we can't see part of your face, we can feel it. So really, you know, make sure that you are fully committed to whatever the piece is about. All right, y'all. Well, this was so great. And to all of our listeners out there, I hope that you heard from some IDA judges about what we're really looking for when we're judging this season and making sure that we're incorporating our performance quality and stage presence and emotions and intention and acting for every dance when you step foot onto the competitive stage. So start working on that now. You got a few more weeks before the season begins if you haven't competed yet and we're looking for it. So thank you so much to our fabulous IDA judges, Sam and Jackie, for joining us on this chat. This was so great. Loved having you both on this. And how we always have our guests lead us out is with a few final thoughts, any words of encouragement you'd like to tell all the dancers, the teachers out there, any final tips, anything you'd like to share with the world about stage presence. Well, I think at the end of the day, what will carry you across, even performance-wise, is confidence. So be confident in the choices that you make when you're on stage and just do it with conviction and we will believe it. You know, it's again about all authenticity for me and just have fun at the end of the day in competition, just remind yourself to have fun and to be confident and you'll be great. I love that. And yeah, I think for me, lesson is sometimes less is more and you don't need to do more. (laughs) Let, you know, let your, let your performance speak for itself, but know, know who you're dancing to, know why you're dancing and know what you're dancing for and just committing and trusting yourself. And, and like Jackie said, just have fun, you know, and at the end of the day, it's three people's opinions and let it be a learning experience and take the critiques and just use them to better your, your next performance. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode all about stage presence. Be sure to follow our very special guests and IDA judges on social media. You can find Jackie at Jacks B. Quick and Sam at Sam Quinn. Don't forget to follow Making the Impact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. IDA's virtual competition is back and launching this February. Submit your dance to receive detailed, personalized feedback from some of the best judges in the industry and compete alongside others from around the world. Each solo entry will be eligible for special awards, overall sponsored prizes, and a chance to recompete in the Top 20 Challenge live stream event. Visit our website at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash virtual competition to learn more and stay tuned for official launch date coming soon. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes in Season 3. Next up, a day in the life of a professional dancer, winning versus losing, and the February edition of Q&A with Courtney Live. Thanks so much for tuning in to Season 3 of Making the Impact. We'll see you next week. Until then, keep dancing!